0: I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show today is The Skin Off His Back, exposing the North to slavery's lash.
1: Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling up the vintage where the grapes of
0: We open with the Battle Hymn of the Republic, performed by Odetta, off of the 1959 album My Eyes Have Seen. Battle Hymn of the Republic, also known as Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory outside of the United States, is a lyric by the American writer Julia Ward Howe, using the music from the song John Brown's Body. The final stanza includes the line, As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. I have seen oh. him in the watch fires of a hundred circling camps. They have oh. builded
1: him an altar in the oh. evening dews and damps. I have oh. read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His truth is marching on.
0: Glow, My guest today is Bruce hallelujah. Laurie, historian and professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst whose most recent work is devoted to abolitionism before the Civil War. This includes the books Beyond Garrison, Anti-Slavery and Social Reform, and Rebels in Paradise, Sketches of Northampton Abolitionists. In November 2016, he published an essay for the Massachusetts Review in their digital series Working Titles, called Chaotic Freedom in Civil War Louisiana, The Origins of an Iconic Image. This image is of a badly abused enslaved man that has been called variously a typical Negro, the Scourged Back, Gordon the Slave, or Poor Peter. The image is of a black man who has turned away from the camera, showing his badly scarred back. Laurie reaches forward to compare it to the photograph labeled Napalm Girl from the Vietnam War in order to take the measure of its reach and value as abolitionist propaganda. Utilizing new photographic technology, the picture of poor Peter quickly found its way into hands and homes all over the nation. It further gained wide exposure in the pages of Harper's Weekly in the July 4, 1863 edition. The context of that image and the power of that image to affect those citizens living as if on a different planet from that of the slave south is our subject for this interchange. We'll begin with a brief history of abolitionism and the way the North was deeply interested in the maintenance of the economic system that required the forced free labor of enslaved men and women.
1: As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. His truth is.
0: the skin off his back with historian Bruce Laurie on Interchange on
1: WFHB.
0: A quick note for everybody uh, that uh, the lyrics of the Battle Hymn of the Republic were published in the Atlantic Monthly in February of, excuse me, 1862. And I just wanted to point that out. It serves as an aspect of propaganda, just as the image we'll be discussing does. Uh, I said we'd begin with a brief history of abolitionism in the U.S., uh, Bruce, and I hope it's possible to help listeners understand that slavery, plausibly intrinsic to the very creation and growth of the nation, uh, even as we begin to s- distinguish a division between North and South, uh, has to be understood uh, in in the large context before we we dive into the specific uh, of this particular case. So, abolitionism is it does it does it come forth as slavery, uh, sort of with slavery itself?
2: The uh, the two developed. Um in opposition to one another. Slavery, as you know, uh, encompassed the whole nation in the North and the South. But in the North, um, historians think of society as a society with slaves. In other words, there were slaves in the, in the North, throughout the North, heavier, heavier concentrations in Rhode Island and uh, Connecticut on tobacco farms. But largely, slaves were domestic servants and sometimes field laborers in the north, relatively few in number. And they were not central to the economy. They never were central to the economy, again, except in those two states. And in New York, uh, through the 1770s into the 1780s, when about a fifth of the population uh, were enslaved in New York City. Mm. So it's important there. Uh, The South is very different. Uh, The South, uh, in the South, slavery is basic and fundamental to um, the leading crops, rice, indigo, and after 18 and 10 or so, uh, cotton. Uh, cotton is the nation's leading product by far. Uh, nothing is even, is even close to leading export. And more and more capital and labor, and slave labor, is tied up in, in the cotton kingdom. The, um, the tentacles of slavery in the South reached into the North and then back to the South again because slavery required an, a huge investment of capital, much of it came from the North. Um, slavery required shipping. Uh, northerners provided the shipping. Uh, slavery required uh, marine insurance, which is a, a huge consideration at the time. Northerners provided the, uh, the insurance. So the uh, northern upper classes in uh, the larger cities, New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, even Boston, thought to be the, the center of um, abolitionism, were deeply implicated in, uh, in the slavery project. In addition, as we're learning more and more these days, universities subsisted or uh, were started on the backs of slaves. Um, they owned slaves. They sold slaves um, in the slave trade. So uh, there is complicity in the North uh, with uh, slavery more generally.
0: So the the one thing and this is a question that I actually had well down on my list uh, tonight but we're starting out with it kind of right in front of us here is the distinction between the way that um, citizens uh, US citizens at the time were uh, were experiencing slavery were were whether that was part of their material existence in the same way you already made the distinction between how how uh, intrinsic it was to the economy of the south and how less so it was to the North in terms of its dailiness, I would think. Now, as you mentioned multiple ways, the North is implicated in the actual uh, economy itself, but rather the people and their dailiness, right? The way in which we develop as beings, you know, with, with you know, our neighbors, our friends, our institutions are vastly different between the North and the South.
2: Oh, absolutely. The uh, uh, Northerners um, had very little direct contact with slaves. Um, less and less as time wore on except as we'll get into later on uh fugitive slaves mm-hmm. in the south it was just a basic part of human life um uh artisans white artisans provided skilled labor for some plantations um in the cities in the southern cities uh white free men and earlier indentured servants and black slaves worked hand and worked side by side mm-hmm. on the major docks especially in New Orleans and uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So uh, Southerners were more likely to have direct contact uh, with slaves and with African-Americans than Northerners. The one exception in the North is, is the city of Philadelphia, which had the largest concentration of African-Americans in the United States, some 20,000 by um, by 1850. Hmm. But there, and in parts of the South, race relations were, were pretty taut and um, let us say uncivilized
0: the um,
2: major merchants le- leading merchants in Boston and even more so in Philadelphia to some extent in New York um, made way for African Americans they they because the labor was relatively cheap so African Americans were employed Irish, um, they demanded those jobs. The only way we had to get into those jobs was to fight the the elites or fight the uh, fight the African Americans on the ground. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there, the North experiences an out, an outburst of race riots, uh, starting in the middle eighteen thirties and stretching into into eighteen forty nine. I believe is the last major one in Philadelphia, and um, wherever those riots ended up. They started on the docks as as um, Irish workers, some Native Americans too, but mostly Irish muscled their way into jobs previously held uh, by African Americans. Mm. So race relations were bad in the
0: in the North and they were getting worse over time. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Skin Off His Back, exposing the North to slavery's lash. Our guest is Bruce Laurie, a historian of abolition in the U.S., and our topic is the iconic Civil War photograph of an enslaved black man whose back is nearly completely covered with scars. We'll get to that iconic image, obviously. Uh, so, Bruce, the, the, it's it's clear that, you know, the enslaved um, black uh, person in the South is is maybe not something that can be conceived of very well in the North. Now, obviously, as you say, there are um, black people in the North, there are black people doing work, normal work, free black people. Uh, so is there a real disconnect between what's going on in the North, uh, between what's going on in the South and how the North is responding to it?
2: If you mean, um, how did Northerners learn about Yes, the yes. Uh, mm-hmm, yeah, oh, that, yes. Uh, well, can we
0: back up a bit? Sure, of course.
2: The way, the way uh, most Northerners learned about slavery was through the abolition mm-hmm. abolition movement, mm-hmm.
3: um, the
2: emancipation movement, of which there were two. Um, let me back up a second and put this in context. Every nation in the world um, had slavery of one kind or another. In some instances, it was closer to serfdom, but uh, it's easier to think of it as slavery if you want to get... Um, more subtle and nuanced about it, you can call some forms of slavery surfery. In other words, a combination of slavery and serfdom. Mm-hmm. In, in, under serfdom, s- the subjects had um, some say in things and some latitude. They could marry. Sometimes they, they, they were free to sell their product, etc., etc. Um, it's also 5,000 years old. Slavery is one mm-hmm. of the oldest institutions known to us as people. But between 1777 and 1888, every nation in the Western world uh, abolishes slavery. In other words, it took about 110 years to undo what had existed for 5,000 years. Mm. If you think of it that way, uh, the 19th century is a really extraordinary period of emancipation and liberation. The, the movement for emancipation in the U.S., Uh, begins uh, right around the time of the Revolutionary War. Um, And it has two motive factors, I would say, Um, ideological and situational. Uh, The situational one is that um, about 5,000 slaves, enslaved peoples in the North, were liberated on the strength of their military service. So that's the single most important factor in the North, probably. Um, At the same time, abolition abolition societies uh, shoot up. New York, Philadelphia, Massachusetts, Boston, etc. And uh, they really um, move forward on two considerations. One is the idealism of the revolutionary period. All men are created equal, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Uh, That is a very popular doctrine in the U.S. Uh, The other is a new form of evangelical Christianity in which... Um, the argument goes, uh, among the sects, Quaker, Baptist, etc., etc., congregational as well, uh, that uh, God commands men and women uh, to make the world a better place. In other words, it's not a matter of passive acceptance of God. And human beings have to become agents, in the elimina- not only in their own salvation, but in the elimination of sin, more broadly. And so those two ideological forces move forward in tandem with the, uh, with the revolutionary uh, liberation um, in the war, with the result that we have an abolition, abolitionist movement. We call it the first abolitionist movement. It uh, stretches from around 1775 to uh, 2005, uh, starting with Vermont, which is the first State in the in the world really to formally abolish slavery, even though there are very few slaves there. And ending with Connecticut, it's 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 a liberation movement that took uh, political form. African Americans petition legislators for freedom. They they march, they demonstrate, mostly um, they 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 mobilized politically uh, to lean on legislatures, and the result is what we call gradual emancipation. Very few places ended slavery in a stroke. Instead, most states uh, stipulated that the children of slaves would be freed, but only after they served a given number of years. That that was a way of compensating their masters for the loss of of slave property. In Connecticut, for example, the the Emancipation Law of 1780 stipulated that African-American children would not be free for 28
0: years. Bruce, let's take a break right now. and we get, come back, we'll, we'll find out more about the second period of abolition. Uh, abolition. Uh, this is Je Fais Tu Le Tour du Pays, which I, uh, translates I Went Around the Country. It's by Jimmy Peters, recorded in the Jefferson Davis Parish of Louisiana in 18. 18- Excuse me, 1934 by Alan Lomax. Stay with us for more with historian Bruce Laurie on abolitionism and the chaotic freedom of Civil War Louisiana.
4: Ko lunda le zari ko se patale. Betul da chieyiyi ma jo chinta ya Oh, ma me donnez-moi les bélicos, mais oh, il y a les bélicos qui m'a pas salé. Je fais des heures du pays avec ma joie qui flambeau. Je me donne à son pras m'a donné qu'est-celle Comment tu m'aimais monter Oh, il y a les bélicos qui m'a Oh, ma me donnez-moi les bélicos, oh, il y a les bélicos qui m'a pas salé. Comment tu de ma joie, comment chat pour où j'ai Comme tu vas te battre, comme tout est du déchiré Oh, maman, donnez-moi les hélicos Mes les allées, pour s'en Oh, ma maman, dans le Oh, maman, dans le Comme tu vas comme tout est du Comme un de toi comme chapeau rouge Oh, mon nom est dans Oh, nénè, mes amis, mon Me Mon ami, mon ami. Mon ami, mon ami. Mon ami, mon ami. Mon ami, mon ami. Mon ami,
0: Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest via phone is Bruce Laurie, historian and author of the books Beyond Garrison and Rebels in Paradise, both dealing with abolitionism. Prior to the Civil War, before we went to the break, we were talking about the first uh, period of abolitionism in the U.S. This went hand-in-hand hand with the uh, revolutionary period and uh, the ideas of uh, the rights of man, I suppose, the idea of, of freedom and having rights, uh, and the evangelical Christian idea of, of, of um I guess, the dignity of the individual, Bruce, and uh, being able to uh, to bring God to all people, to bring people to God? Yes. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have uh, that early period from uh, the Revolutionary period and then on into the, uh, I think you said 1805 was, was that kind of first period, and this, this kind of coincides with a, a religious awakening as well. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so abolitionism makes sense. Obviously, there. If you believe that uh, all men uh, are created equal, if you believe that, um, y- y- well, I guess you have to believe that uh, black people uh, at the time, uh, Africans brought to this uh, this um, country, and then uh, Americans born of uh, enslaved people as well, you'd have to believe they were men and women proper, right?
2: Yeah, that's that's the line that separates more enlightened people from the children of darkness.
0: <laughs> that's right. Of course. That's, darkness. Uh, of course. So the the but this is a, obviously a, um a, a line that that seems to be one that people either disregard or make in their head in some ways when you think about the, the, the violence, uh, the brutality, you know, the rapes, the murders, the beatings, you know, the way in which, uh, African-Americans become chattel slaves. Um, so there must be a way in which some people can say these, this isn't a person. It's, it's, you know, we can beat our dogs, we can beat our slaves.
2: Exactly. Um, there are, um, there's a two pronged. um, Let's call it the darkness myth, or the uh, yeah, the darkness myth. Uh, African Americans are either property, or they're not fully human. Right. In which case, you can do with them as you will. Um, by the and uh, a corollary to that, really, the the the, um, the the premise is blacks were born separately. They were not created when whites were created. Mm. They're a separate. They're a separate race. The, uh, the Christian contribution to abolitionism, on the other hand, is that, no, no, we were all born, we're all God's children. Mm-hmm. We are of, as, as they would say, of one blood. Now, if you're of one blood, uh, it means that you are, in some sense, um, brothers and sisters, if not completely equal. I mean, <laughs> equality was the, a was the huge problem right. uh, on both sides of the ledger, on the dark side and the light side.
0: So so abolitionism has to address the fact that there are obviously people who believe that people should be free, there shouldn't be slaves. Uh, we talk uh, in this country frequently about Lincoln, the great emancipator, uh, a man who, as far as I can tell, believed that uh, men should not be slaves, but that uh, uh, black people were not equal to white people. This was a fairly common understanding of uh, um, uh, whites versus blacks in the North at the time as well. So abolitionism is struggling to be be both, uh, you know, ideal in the sense of equality and egalitarianism, but also at the same time struggling against those ideas, uh, those hierarchical ideas of, of value uh, in God's eyes, as well as, I guess, one's fellow man's eyes.
2: Yeah, I, I think Lincoln is an interesting case here, and, and uh, a point of departure, really. Mm-hmm. The, the prevailing uh, position on uh, African Americans in the teens, the 18-teens, mm-hmm. was, was colonization.
0: Right, the, the Liberia, Henry Clay?
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, this was a very important group. Uh, it included ex-presidents, leading clerics, uh, leading business people, etc., etc. It was formed in 1816, and it would persist until the Civil War. And its solution was voluntary um, emancipation and deportation of, of African Americans to uh, the colony of Liberia in the United States, Uh, excuse me, uh, Liberia, as a colony of the American Colonization Society. And in in England, uh, the counterpart was Sierra Leone. Hmm. The uh, African-Americans revolt against that in the 1820s. More and more African-American voices, David Walker and others, begin arguing that, look, um, uh, we were born here, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or we came here against our will, but one way or another we're here uh, and we expect to be uh, fully formed human beings and treated as such. Mm-hmm. Um, whites picked that up in the late 18, 1820s and 1830s, and William Lloyd Garrison in particular. And Garrison is really the father of the Second Emancipation Movement, which, uh, as I see it, it uh, persists on the same ideological factors that drew the first movement, um, plus... Um, much better organization the uh, the abolitionists and the american abolitionist abolition society american anti-slavery society excuse me of which garrison was the head they were really ingenious propagandizers they um, they figured out how to use mass media the mails images rallies demonstrations petitions you name it they did it down to the use of crockery they would sell uh, dishes and dinnerware to people. Um, and one famous one was a a, a a plate with an image of a slave in the bottom of it breaking his chains um, against the rising sun. So when you invite someone over to dinner, they would be slurping their soup or their stew and having a grand time until they got to the bottom and they saw,
5: ooh, <laughs> nice.
2: what's there, oops. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they were really quite ingenious mm. at... Um, at that kind of organizing and propagandizing. As a result, the movement, which never had more than 100,000 people, as best we can tell, looked much, much larger than it actually was. And so it's a classic case of a, a well-organized minority exercising outside outsized influence on, on political uh, and social affairs. Mm. Um, the churches were key. Uh, Garrison didn't think so, but the churches, he thought the churches were complicit uh, with slavery, and he became a bitter uh, anti-cleric. But it turns out that churches were the seedbed uh, of a good part of the abolition, uh, abolition movement, in large part, uh, the more evangelical churches. In other words, the more enthusiastic churches, um, the Baptists, the Methodists, Congregationalists, and of course, the Quakers. Um, the more evangelical the Church, generally speaking, the greater the proportion of women. Uh, mm-hmm. The greater proportion of women, the more likely the Church was to be abolitionist. Um, some churches split, almost all the sects split North and South. That's S-E-C-T-X. Mm-hmm. Uh, they split North and South over the question of slavery, starting um, in the late 1830s and into the 1860s. So what we have are the, uh, these ideological forces... Uh, the question of organization and propagandizing. And the third force, often overlooked, uh, but it can't be, is this, uh, the circumstances of, of uh, pro-slavery politics. By that I mean um, there are a series of moments, starting in the late 1830s, stretching through the late 1840s and into the mid-19 and uh, early 1950s, in which a series of events take place that convince more and more Americans that the South has too much power, Uh, the South is a problem, and the source of the problem is is slavery. Um, Just as a quick example, in in 1837 the Congress of the United States decides it will no longer entertain uh, or discuss petitions, anti-slavery petitions, and it it clamps down on what's called the gag rule. in other words, petitions that came to Congress were simply set aside and were not discussed. That would be renewed every year for about five years, five or six years. Well, um, ordinary Americans are saying, "What is, what is what's going on here?" Um, and they really they're, they get pretty upset. Slavery is looking more and more like an anti-democratic institution, uh, and so that period produces an awful lot of consternation over the question of of this, what was called the slave power. The slave power was this conspiratorial force that was set to control Congress, the courts, and sometimes the presidency. Mm. Um, And slave power advocates would say, well, look, who were the speakers in the House from the mid-'30s up to the Civil War? And the answer was, well, most of them were slave owners Mm -hmm. or apologists for slavery. Uh, A good number of the presidents, starting with uh, Andrew Jackson. owners as well. So there was good reason to believe that there was something to the slave power thesis, which gains even more strength in the second great event of the period, the Mexican War. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, an unnecessary war. Uh, the North provoked Mexico into battle because Southerners wanted the, last th- the lower third of uh, the northern, North American continent for slave territory. Um, it's, a, it's a hugely unpopular war in the North. In fact, Massachusetts, uh, refused to send troops. Um, uh, people are agitating against mustering uh, they're agitating against sending any any support uh, 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 for the war and so it's 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 hugely controversial, and of course it ends with the United States inheriting more and more uh, territory thought to be slave territory Proved untrue, uh, but it was another example of the slave power and probably Probably the most egregious act of the period was the Fugitive Slaves Act of 1850, which, which strengthened the federal government's arm to reclaim slaves who'd run away uh, through the Underground Railroad and other means. Um, agents of the federal government came to cities, especially Philadelphia, Boston, and they rounded up slaves, uh, suspected, slave, suspected uh, runaway slaves, took them into these phony courts where they had no rights, uh, no legal representation, etc., and returned them to slavery. Uh, Those activities produced enormous demonstrations uh, throughout the North, and more and more the South is looking like a,
0: a slave power. It's time for another break. This is Get Off the Track, a song written by the Hutchinson family, Hutchinson Family Singers, the most popular American entertainers of the 1840s, the Hutchinsons were a hit with both audiences and critics touring the country and popularizing four-part close harmony. Their songs were often controversial, promoting abolitionism, workers' rights, temperance, and women's rights. Stay with stay with us for more of the skin off his back when Interchange returns.
3: Emancipation rides majestic through our nation bearing on his
1: train the story liberty and nation's glory. Roll it along, roll it along, roll it along through the nation freedom's car emancipation. Roll Roll it along, roll it along, roll it along through the nation freedom's car emancipation. First of all, the train and greater Speeds the dauntless liberator Onward cheered amid hosannas And the waving of free banners Roll it along, roll it along Roll it along, spread your banners While the people shout hosannas Roll it along, roll it along Roll it along, spread your banners While the people shout hosannas Let the ministers and churches leave behind sectarian lurches Jump on board the car of freedom ere it be too late to need them Sound the alarm, sound the alarm Sound the alarm, puppets thunder, ere too late you see your blunder Sound the alarm, sound the alarm Sound the alarm, alarm, puppets thunder, ere too late you see your blunder
0: Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast,
1: lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More
0: information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB.
3: All
1: true friends of emancipation Haste to freedom's railroad station Quick into the cars get seated All is ready and completed Put on the steam Put on the steam Put on the steam All are crying and the liberty flags are flying Put on the steam Put on the steam Put on the steam steam. The mighty car wheels humming, now look out the engines coming. Church and statesmen hear the thunder, clear the track or you'll fall under. Get off the track, get off the track. Get off the track, all are singing while the Liberty Bell is ringing. Get off the track, get off the track. Get off the track, all are singing while the Liberty Bell is ringing.
0: Welcome back to Interchange. Our guest via phone is Bruce Laurie, historian and author, most recently of a long essay called "Chaotic Freedom in Civil War Louisiana: The Origins of an Iconic Image." Went to the break, and before that, we'd heard uh, a lot of information. Uh, one in particular, William Lloyd Garrison, uh, kind of the um, uh, poster boy for abolitionism. If I, I mean, that's obviously you know not making light of Garrison, I suppose. But but uh, what I mean is he's the larger-the-life figure that most people recognize. He's the great man of abolitionism. Uh, and uh, we'll talk briefly about how we might contest that as uh, as we go ahead here, we talked about uh, women in the churches and women generally being abolitionist. Uh, we talked about the slave power, the South and their um, power in Congress, in the in the federal government, the Mexican War, a war fought to extend slave power. There was a gag rule in which no, you know, the Congress the, uh, the decided just not to listen to any uh, citizens. And the Fugitive Slave Act, which required uh, or allowed the federal government to send uh, agents out and, and search out for uh, runaway uh, slaves and send them back to the South. Uh, and all in all, Bruce, you called this uh, slavery in particular an anti-democratic power, uh, which creates a problem for people who believe in democracy. They may not be uh, for equality. Uh, they may not even necessarily be against slavery per se, but it seems like the slave power has too much power. And so that becomes fighting words as well.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, w- one way to think about this is um, there are several positions uh, on, on the South and slavery. Um, to the right, in other words, the most conservative uh, critique of slavery is that it, it was anti-Southern. Um, Northerners uh, just didn't like the South. They yes. thought the South had excessive political power, and it was an undemocratic place, and so uh, and slavery was the root of it. Um, they weren't happy with the idea of emancipation. In fact, um, most of them thought, as Lincoln did, uh, well, if you do emancipate the slaves, you can ship them out, and you'll eliminate the race problem, um, and also the problem of of quote, quote the slave power. Um, a middling position uh, was that, yeah, we can uh, we can emancipate we can emancipate uh, the slaves, uh, but hope they stay in the South, because we don't want them here in the North. Uh, But that's it, Um, freedom and no more, much like the first abolitionist movement. Um, The most radical position, um, which had its own gradations, was that freedom is not enough, that it's not enough to liberate the slaves. What you need to do is make them into citizens. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's a huge fight, both outside and inside. Emancipation movement over what freedom means, who's entitled to it, how much, and so
0: forth. Mm-hmm. Now, um, yep. we're uh, the time will run short on us quickly, and we need to get to uh, the, your essay in this image. And uh, in, within that that story itself, we can discuss some of what's what we're talking about here as well, because it it does help illustrate the way certain people view these particular issues from the battlefield and from within the conflict and uh, from people who, who you know, may be abolitionists but have never really experienced what it means to be uh, in the slave territory and understand the experience of slavery itself and, and finally getting some uh, experience of that changing how they perceive things. Um, one of the things that you make note of in your book Beyond Garrison is the distinction between political action and moral suasion or the idea that political, uh, I guess to garrison perhaps or People that believed in what Garrison believed in—that politics was dirty and compromising—that there was, you had to sort of convert to this ideal position that all men were created equal, everybody should be free right now and done, and the rest of it was 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 something you shouldn't partake in. Yes. That, um, and you you make the point that that didn't really make a lot of sense. That a lot of work had to be done done around the edges too.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm very critical of him. I, I'm hardly the first to sure. say that his position uh, was a dead end, but there are people who to this day, uh, in, including a fairly substantial group of historians, who admire the man and defend him to the hilt, if, if not on his, his, uh, his, 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 um, his tactics, uh, certainly on his ideals of liberty, because he really never compromised. Mm. I mean, he said African Americans are, 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 are human beings, mm-hmm. and what we need to do is, um, is extend to them the rights of citizenship, full citizenship. Now, he was also uh, quite paternalistic. Uh, he talked about blacks in the most condescending ways um, and about, civ- quote, civilizing them. Uh, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, uh, that's a pretty advanced position for its time. Sure. The, uh, his, his faction of the movement after 1837 uh, gives way to uh, political anti-slavery. In mm-hmm. other words, people uh, who argued that uh, slavery was not really a moral question. It was first and foremost a political question. It was politics that created slavery, and it would be politics that would undo slavery. And so, more and more anti slavery people wind up mobilizing um, in the political arena, either as uh, participants in established parties or more frequently, insurgent parties, anti slavery parties. The most important of which is the Republican Party, right? Mm -hmm. The Republican Party, it's often forgotten, was. Be- was well, it, it had a a noble anti-slavery origins, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was it's the only successful third-party insurgency in American history.
0: So we at the time we had what Whigs, uh,
2: wigs, uh, and Whigs are sort of the butt of jokes. Of uh, <laughs> they become a metaphor for for failure. For, it's one of the few parties that disappears actually mm-hmm. between 1854 and 1856, and the Democrats. The Whigs were moderately anti-slavery, but only moderately so. The Democrats were pro-slavery, mm-hmm. largely a Southern party uh, with Northern adherents who were called Copperheads and um, and other things as well that we can't get <laughs> out in the air. <laughs>
0: right. um, we need to remember the, uh, I guess, for our era, the Dixiecrats are the closest we understand, I suppose, to the Democrats of the era. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, so. Beyond the fact that you know, talking about it as, a, as a political, um, one understands the idea that, that politics is important and has to be played to figure out how to make these changes, right? Politics becomes war, of course. It doesn't, it's, you know, that's a different uh, kind of politics altogether, I suppose. But, but the idea is not just that politics change, has to change. It's an economic force of unbelievable power. Right. the the issue is that that is the sole strength of the U.S. generally is its economic strength at the time, and and so fighting against the economics of the slave power uh, may be uh, impossible. It may have been impossible, right? In the sense that you know, war becomes necessary because yeah. of the econo- um, because there is no politics that can fix it. The economics are too one-sided.
2: Exactly. Well, let's back up just one step. Sure. Uh, I I said at the start that every nation in the West Mm -hmm. had slavery, right? Only two of them went to war over slavery, Haiti and the United States. Mm -hmm. All all other nations uh, were a lot more pragmatic about it. Mm. Uh, They liberated the slaves um, immediately or gradually, but in either instance they did not resort to violence. Um, The South insisted on fighting uh, to defend its property. Uh, its society, and its way of life. Um, Think of it this way. There are 4 million uh, slaves in the South in 1860. Um, So in 1860, they're worth millions and millions of dollars. Uh, After the Civil War, they're worth nothing. Mm -hmm. In other words, the South lost its property. Mm -hmm. It's the greatest confiscation of property that we know of, even more so than the Russian Revolution.
0: Hmm. A confiscation that goes up in the air and no one gets that property.
2: Well, a, 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 good, uh, a good field hand, let us say, <laughs> which I mean, a young man, uh, 18 years old, mm-hmm. in 1860, is worth anywhere from 1500 to $2,000. Mm-hmm. In 1866, when, after slavery is abolished, he's worth nothing except his labor power. Right, right.
0: Uh, that's one way of thinking about sure. what the South lost. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB, our show as the skin off his back, exposing the North to slavery's lash with Bruce Laurie. And we do need to expose the North to slavery's lash with your essay, Chaotic Freedom, uh, Bruce. Uh, so you wrote a long essay about uh, this iconic image of um, an escaped slave. Uh, enslaved black man who has uh, has a has his picture taken with just his back, and the back is well, it's his his body, his torso, and his head as well. But his his back is turned to the camera, full of scars. It's an iconic image. You say it's one of the 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 images of slavery that we we carry with us in 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 textbooks and our understanding of the brutality of slavery. Uh, so, what drew you to that picture? Did you study that picture? Did you want to study the origins of that? photograph before you found out anything more about the people who were involved in it, or did you come at it from a different direction?
2: I, uh, in, uh, in my previous book, uh, Rebels in Paradise, mm-hmm. I'd written, uh, uh, that book is, is sketches of five white male, four white male abolitionists and one African-American abolitionist mm-hmm. uh, who lived in the city of um, Northampton, yeah. Massachusetts.
0: David Ruggles.
2: David Ruggles. Mm-hmm. And so um, in one of the figures in, uh, in, in in the sketches is a man named Henry Gare, G-E-R-E. Uh, so I'd written about Gare in my previous book, and I'd known that he'd fought in the Civil War. Hmm. Um, but I didn't want to cover him in that book because it would have taken a lot more time, and I wanted to get the book out.
0: Right. right. So this is a, a, an investigation into um, Gare and his uh, the part he plays in this photograph, but also the kind of man he is, the kind of uh, abolitionist he is, as well as a counterpart to to him in this in this uh, essay, uh, Marshall Stearns, who is more of the regular guy. Let's uh, Bruce. Before we get into this fully, let's let's go to our last break, and then we'll we'll have the last segment completely to this this aspect. Uh, so this this next song for the break is "Rockaway," an English language version of a Black Creole funeral shout that provides an example of the African Caribbean drumming style that's been incorporated into the Black Creole repertoire. It's another led by Jimmy Peters and recorded by Alan Lomax. Stay with us. <laughs>
5: The <laughs> little no, no, I, you know, I, you know, to me, C'est ça, say, 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 Mr. Sally brought the news, na we na so, Says is the salad for the letter, the redone is there. This the salad for the news, the redone no, 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 no. The redone is there, away, right away. The redone
0: Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Bruce Laurie is our guest and historian of abolitionism in the U.S. Before we went to the break, we started to talk about uh, Bruce's long essay for the Massachusetts Review working title series called Chaotic Freedom. Uh, in Civil War, Louisiana, The Origins of an Iconic Image. Uh, so, Bruce, we have Henry Henry Gare, who is the, um, I believe he's the postmaster for the 52nd Regiment, uh, Massachusetts Regiment, and Marshall Stearns, who uh, ends up um, being in charge of, quote unquote, contraband.
2: Yes. Um, I... I, yeah, I well, uh, listeners can read the essay if they want. Um, mm-hmm. a, a, good part of, a good part of it is about Henry Gere's political baptism in the 1840s and 50s. Um, it's enough to say here that um, he gets he's an abolitionist before he could vote. Um, he's a printer by trade, serves an apprenticeship with a firebrand abolitionist who, and that's where he learns to hate slavery. He also learns to hate the South. Um, he is from, um, well, we, we, uh, we New Englanders think of um, our people in, in two categories. One, sort of Brahmins, upper-class um, upper Yankees.
0: Mm-hmm. The Emersons. Uh, sorry? The Emersons.
2: Yeah, people like that. Yeah. Emersons, the Lowell's, the Cabots mm-hmm. You know, the Cabot speak, to, uh, Cabot's speak to, the Lowell, to the Lowell's, and the Lowell's speak to God. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. um, the other are Swamp Yankees, poor Yankees, who got the, the short end of the stick in the family inheritance. Gare's Gares' origins are sort of in the middle. He's sort of a middling family. Um, And so he enters the service in fall 1862 because he really wants to do in the South. I mean, he hates Southerners. He hates slavery. He'd fought it all his life. And here he is, uh, 34 years old, uh, one of the oldest members of the regiment. Um, Mm -hmm. His uh, companion... Uh, Stearns is, is much different. Stearns is from a relatively prosperous family of house carpenters in Northfield, Massachusetts, the home of the storied private school. Uh, but he was a black sheep of the family. He wasn't interested in the family business. Instead, he went to California, into the gold rush, and he fails very badly. He's lured back home when his sister-in-law tells him, well, if you want to come back, you can have the family homestead. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, he doesn't think much. He her, uh, rushes back home, Takes over the homestead, uh, but he is a—he's um, basically a Unionist, not an abolitionist. Uh, he, like most soldiers, thought that the w- the war was really all about preserving the Union, not, not abolishing slavery. Mm-hmm. And what my what my essay is all about is how these men um, were educated in the in the South. Um, mm-hmm. Gare, for his part, uh, learns to hate slavery even more. Uh, because he's, he's, you know, he's the postmaster general of, of the of Army of the, of the Gulf, as you pointed out. So he had a lot of time on his hands. And so he just wandered about Baton Rouge, where they were stationed, his regiment was stationed. he starts interviewing slaves. And uh, he's, 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 he's endlessly interested in what they had to say about themselves and their hopes. Um, and uh, his, his anti-slavery edge gets honed sharper and sharper and sharper, uh, in the course of his baptism, uh, in which he sees slavery firsthand uh, uh, Stearns is very different. Stearns is a racist, uh, writes these uh, letters back home, uh, um, splattered with um, with racist insults uh, there, His letters are barely literate um, uh, there 's misspellings there's terrible punctuation, et etc et etc but he 's influenced by Henry Gare to some extent, and then in in uh, December 1862, since he's an older guy, too, 32, I believe, he is made the head of a contraband camp. Um contraband camp um, has a background that I should probably go into here. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, when the, as the Union Army advanced into the South, uh, through Virginia especially, and later on in 1862 into uh, Louisiana... Um, s- the word went out through the slave quarters that the liberators were here and as a result um they break for the union lines and in upper virginia um it becomes a huge problem uh because here's an army whose whose mission was to restore the union and they become the hosts of these uh runaway slaves the, uh, one of the most important generals in the area, Brigadier General um, Benjamin Butler, uh, who was actually a uh, Lowell, Massachusetts Democrat and hardly a radical, uh, gets radicalized uh, during the war. And so he invents a policy on the ground, and he declares runaway slaves contraband of war, by which he meant uh, they were property in the service of the rebellion. And as a result subject to um, confiscation. Mm-hmm. So he sets up a camp. And it's called the Contraband Camp. And that sets a precedent for the rest of the war. Wherever the Union Army marched uh, with increasing fury after 1863, more and more slaves broke for the Union lines, and they were centered in these refugee centers that we call uh, Contraband Camps. Mm. The camps become the instrument of policy, because Lincoln, as the war as, as the war began, Lincoln really wasn't interested in, in abolitionism. Lincoln was interested in restoring um, in restoring the Union. But um, in 1861, Congress passed the first Confiscation Act, which declared slaves to be contraband. Uh, a year later, in March 1862, it passes the um, the Second Confiscation Act, which declares goes a step farther and says that these slaves. Enslaved peoples who are contraband will not be returned to their owners. Mm-hmm. So they're in limbo. They're no longer slaves, but they're not free either. Right. This is what forces Abraham Lincoln's hand um, in summer 1862. Um, he'd been thinking about emancipation. He'd had to visit, a tough visit from Frederick Douglass and others. He accused him, accused him of being wishy washy and shilly shallying on the question of slavery. And so in uh, September 1862, uh, he declares the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which says that if the, if the South does not give up, does not surrender by the end of the year, he will declare a general amnesty. Hmm. The general amnesty amnesty in the form of the Emancipation Proclamation takes effect on January 1, 1863. Um, it has two major provisions. The first is that it exempted much of the South. Um, Slaves were declared free in areas under Southern control, which means that it it, it really didn't emancipate many slaves. Uh, Areas, whole whole other areas of Louisiana, Virginia, um, um, Louisiana and and Virginia, Tennessee, were declared off-limits as well.
0: Hmm. Uh, well, let's let's okay. jump. Real, let's, Bruce. I'm sorry, I have to do this. Let's jump real quick and to try to understand as you as you mentioned in the piece or the title of the piece, "Chaotic Freedom." This is part of that chaotic freedom, right? There's no actual uh, understanding of what we're going to do with the formerly enslaved peoples that are now in these camps, and and what what's the next step for for all these people? Uh, this is okay. one of the the key issues, right? But and on top of that, and what's the key part of your essay that we have uh, about three minutes to talk about? Is, is the photograph of what we come to call Peter, once called Gordon, that was also used in a Harper's Weekly spread, uh, a propagandistic uh, essay about uh, Peter coming in without um, clothing or in rags, you know, being uh, also being showing the the whipped back, and then uh, Peter becoming a Union soldier as well, a, a propaganda propagandizing the turn of the enslaved man to a, a good, strong Union soldier as well. So is there any truth to Peter besides the fact that it's a, 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 clearly a, a real uh, African or African-American enslaved person who'd been beaten badly?
2: Uh, Peter's real. Um, we have testimony. Uh, I just found additional testimony of people who uh, ministered to him. When he came into uh, the uh, uh, Stearns' contraband camp um, in um, late March 1863, so yeah, he exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, no question about that. Um, was he beaten? Yeah,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that's true. He was a, sa- a slave in Southern Louisiana, probably French-speaking.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, when they saw his back, they they were scandalized, mm-hmm. and so they took him to a photographer and had the image made. Um, They had another image made at the end of the month. The second image, image made at the end of the month, is one that became iconic. Mm. What's in dispute uh, to this day is whether Peter became a soldier. Right. Um, And there's no easy way of resolving that. I think uh, I found an important clue. Uh, earlier today, but I'm I'm am not sure you're
0: going to sit on that one. Don't give it away. the the uh, uh, The key here, though, is how he become how the propaganda works. Right? Is the fact that there's new photo technology that allows you to make a a, a carte de vista or something like this, right? A, a, like a postcard of of Peter with uh, via negative. So this is how the going from a daguerreotype to this new technology allows this picture to be spread quickly. Yeah, it's
2: and it's 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 of, it's of a piece with what I mentioned earlier on about abolitionists and how they really grasped tools of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are really the first to figure out how to make photographic imagery a form of
0: propaganda. Mm-hmm. And one thing I wanted to say, and I, I hate that I've done this and 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 run us out of time, but one of the things you point out in your essay is how both Gare and Stearns were shocked at the the variety of skin tone and skin color. Yes. They were shocked that so many you know, children had been born of masters.
2: The, um, the cardinal sin of evangelical Protestantism was to lose self-control. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you were a drunkard, it's because you lost self-control. Um, you had to be contr- in control of your faculties at all times and exercise what was called self-government. There was no better example of that than the licentiousness of slave
0: masters. Yes, That's got to have to be our show. We'll close with a 2017 rendition of the Battle Hymn of the Republic by Jean-Baptiste. Thanks to Bruce Laurie for joining us today, Professor Emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and author of Beyond Garrison and Rebels in Paradise. Thanks so much, Bruce Laurie. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.